You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, episode number 63, Understanding Heterogeneity for Patient Preference Data and How It Affects the Benefit-Risk Ratio for Treatments, in interview with Marco Burry. Welcome to the Effective Statistician with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, the weekly podcast for statisticians in the health sector designed to improve your leadership skills, widen your business acumen, and enhance your efficiency. If you have not done yet, join our email list. So just go to theeffectivestatistician.com and subscribe to the emails because over the next months we'll do probably a couple of new webinars and you'll hear about that through these uh, subscription and uh, so just get in on there and make sure you first never miss these episodes and second never miss when we will have a webinar like earlier in this year so in today's episode we actually talk about a very very technical topic And as we in two previous episodes already talked about benefit risk and, and preference data, so just scroll back into your, uh, in your smartphone app or on your uh, uh, anything else that you're listening to this on, maybe it's Spotify or something different or maybe even on YouTube, just click back and find earlier episodes with uh, Maria Costa and uh, show rule as well as with uh, Brad Hauber where we talked about benefit risk and uh, preference data. So in today's episode we look into heterogeneity for preference data and how that is different than for clinical studies and um, what kind of factors actually have an impact on that. We'll also talk about a case study where we actually used some very, very interesting methods to understand um, how similar patients cluster together that have similar preferences. We'll also give you some hints about where to find more information, but of course, as usual, you can just go to the show notes and find everything there. This podcast is like always, created in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to special interest groups, the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. Just visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of The Effective Statistician. And today it's again about one of my favorite topics. It's about patient preference data and how it affects the benefit-risk ratio for treatments. And as a guest, I have... Uh, today I have Marco. Hi Marco, how are you doing? Hi Alexander, I'm, I'm very well, thank you. And thanks for inviting me here. Thanks. So we have been working together on a couple of different projects and uh, we also know each other from the Special Interest Group for Benefit Risk. But maybe you can introduce yourself to the listener first. Sure. 
Um, I'm Marco Boeri. I live in the UK and work for, um, I worked in academia for over six or seven years and then moved into RTI Health Solution uh, based in Manchester. As you can hear from my name, I'm Italian originally. I am a trained economist. So a trained economist talking about statistics is not always welcome in my world, but I've, I've been do doing econometrics and statistics for uh, my all my degrees and I learned how to uh, pull these things together and I've added psychology if you want when you start looking into preferences and and that's my passion really looking at um, how people make choices and how people have makes trade-offs and preferences for different things uh, I live in as I said in Northern Ireland in the UK I have two kids and a wife and like running <laughs> <laughs> like myself as well so are you going to attend the PSI conference this year of course I am yes unfortunately I uh, I will only attend a, two, a couple of days because uh, my sister-in-law decided to get married of that week. Oh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I always look forward to that uh, conference. Yeah. It's a wonderful venue to discuss. Yeah, we had lots of uh, patient benefit risk uh, sessions at this conference in the past, and uh, they were always quite well intended and, and very, very nice. Um, thoughts onto this one. And today we actually talk also about a topic um, that was presented in 2018 at the PSI conference in Amsterdam. And we are talking about heterogeneity uh, today. But first, let's say, you know, take a little bit of a step back and talk about what patient experience data is from a broader point of view. So what's your perception or what's your definition about that? So when, when I look at, when we want to talk about heterogeneity and we talk about preferences, but preferences is really part of a wider topic, which is patient experience. And, and that topic probably is more known to people. And patient experience is what... Um, Uh, includes all the impacts of disease and condition, uh, uh, the therapy and the experience that they had, and how they impact on their on the patient's life. Um, it includes also preferences with respect to treatment and different disease and different conditions, and how to deal with both the therapy, the uh, um, side effects of the therapy, how, how you, you, you use the therapy, uh, how the therapy impacts on you and how the, the, the condition that you have as a patient impacts to you. And, and so data can be used to understand how people, patients experience their, their symptoms, their, their, how the, the, condition, the, the condition impacts in your functioning and the quality of life. Um, and as well as what You know, when we when we take medicines, we have we all know that we have benefits from that benefit, but we also have benefit from that medicine. But we also have and take risks, and we take risks all the time when we go out and we walk, and so we just wait around, and that's when patient preferences comes in and uh, let us understand how different patients perceive different benefits and different risks and different features of different medicine and treatments yeah i like this term patient experience because it includes lots of lots of different things it also shows that preferences can depend 
on previous experiences. So in terms of, for example, if you know how um, certain side effects feel, if you um, have seen certain conditions in your family, for, for example, then that will have, have an impact on your preferences and will inform your choices through this. However, these experiences are very, very difficult to capture. And it's not something that we usually capture in clinical trials. Well, we don't ask whether you, the, uh, the, the caregiver, for example, for uh, Alzheimer patients had, you know, uh, experience with treating another uh, Alzheimer patient in the past or, or um, helping another Alzheimer patient in the past, these kind of things. So I think that's a very, very interesting uh, topic that we are looking to into this today. Yeah, I, I agree. I totally agree. Experience is wider than preferences, and we need to understand experience before we can even think about heterogeneity and preferences. Um, um, yeah. In fact, yeah. In terms of the preferences, there's two different um, definitions there. There's revealed and there's stated preferences. Can you talk <clears throat> a little bit to these kind of two different scenarios? Sure. Let me let me just take a, a step back and, and see when, when we talk about preferences uh, and preference data, we often at least in, in my world, I, I hear, I hear uh, the word discrete choice experiment, the, the conjoint analysis. However, those are all only methods. When we, when we look at preferences, we look at um, a qualitative or quantitative assessment of the desirability or, and accessibility to patient of specific alternatives or choices and how they trade off between um between attributes that characterize these alternatives is one and only one of the uh, preferences that we want to, to look into. And so when we when I started studying uh, preferences, I started in environmental economics, and that's there is a lot more that you can observe in real life. And, and preferences have been developed in marketing, and that's even more. You have real data, real world data. Every time you observe um, Every time you observe the reality and you observe people acting in the real world and looking look at their choice, that's when you look at revealed preferences. The preferences are revealed to you by the people's actions and the actual choices. So, for example, in when we were looking at the value of lakes or, or recreational activities, we would look at how people, how much people traveled to to make it a to have a couple of days off in, in the nature. Mm. In, in, in medicine, this is a little bit different because we, we probably have a lot of data in terms of uh, prescription, but it's not real uh, choice. It's not unconstrained. You do what you, of, most of the time, you do what you can because you have a prescription or a, med, a doctor tell you something. Um, so reveal preferences in, in, in medicine, in pharma is really very much related to patient preference trials. And there's been a couple of them and direct questions in clinical trials. So they're all related to observational studies or clinical trials. Um, stated preference, on the other hand, um, it takes a step back from reality. When you do a stated preferences, you develop a survey. And in this survey, you really want to explore hypothetical concepts, things that are not existing or they are 
combination of factors or you want to see how much you can stretch a risk, how much how much benefit you would need for an hypothetical medicine to be convenient or to be uh, good, having some certain risk or having some uh, mode of administration. And that's when we talk about stated preference. And there are different methods. Of course, it's not only discrete choice. And I'm all, I've, I've always been an advocate of uh, use the method you need to respond to answer the question you have and not use the discrete choice because it's fancy. So there is threshold techniques, there is direct assessment questions, there is best for scaling. And there are other and other groups of, of, of um, preference data. Preferences like ranking and swing weighting that's more uh, used within MCDA and um, you know time trade-off standard gamble are other health state utility um, methods and those again uh, are used differently in different uh, contexts and of course heterogeneity is a different concept in all of this so depending on the method you will explore heterogeneity preferences differently. And I think in in our work together, we worked a lot in how to deal with preferences, a preference heterogeneity in discrete choice. And so probably that's where we're going to focus. But what what I really wanted to to mention is that uh, depending on the research question, maybe you have a different method that you can use to analyze preference heterogeneity. And sometimes you have a simpler question and you can explore better preference heterogeneity rather than use a discrete choice. However, in this case, discrete choice, uh, which can be used to analyze both revealed and stated preferences, but it's often used to analyze stated preferences, is probably is what, what we what we are going to talk about today. Yeah. Just in terms of revealed preferences, I found the um the lake scenario quite interesting. So if you have different kind of recreational areas and you compare them in terms of how far people travel uh, to to get to these, then kind of the the length of the travel or, or the burden of the travel gives you an indication of how uh, yeah, valuable or, or preferred these kind of um, areas are for the different uh, yes. visitors, um, which is really uh, so you get, you basically use a surrogate marker to kind of understand yes. the preference. And sometimes yeah. you can't, sometimes some others you can't. It depend it depends really on how uh, many alternatives you have and how real choice it is what you're doing. But yes, that's exactly the concept. And another very, very interesting yeah. revealed preference method that is used is hedonic is when you look at the value of the house and you look at what the amenities there are around. Mm. And so you're more willing to pay a house that is closer to a good school if you have a, if you have a young family, uh, you know, green spaces. And that works all the time. If you look at house prices and you look at the characteristic that people look for, you will see that prices go up when the characteristic are, you know, better or people there likes them. And it's very much cultural, of course. Yeah, as I really like this idea that you have some kind of burden that you can measure and that helps you to understand the, the value of uh, something else yep. that is related to that. Yeah. So it could be also kind of, you know, you um, if you have two different medications and one is, let's say... Um, 
more cumbersome to take or more pricey or yeah, whatsoever, some kind of burden that is associated with it. And then you can see, okay, in, uh, in terms of maybe all the taking all the other things are equal um, and it's maybe just the efficacy that is different of these two different treatments, what is the, what is the benefit? The other kind of revealed um, preferences, I think, is in scenarios where maybe you have um, rather chronic diseases and you could ra more or less easily switch between treatments and basically you try all the different treatments that are out there um, and then you stick with the ones that um, helps you best. Yeah, it is real as far as you can see, you can observe it in real life. So if we had the data uh, in the last year, what, what type of medicine you used and what type of medicine you had as an option, then you could do this. You, of course, need alternatives, and that's the bit, the bit that is difficult. So you need to track not only what you're taking, but what you're not taking. So I always give the, yeah. the example yeah. of the bottle of wine. You're not only going home and look at the bottle of wine. You need to look at back at the, the shop and see all you all you need or all you had. And, and that's yeah. that's the tricky bit. But yes. Yeah, I think it works if you have kind of a small number of different treatments. So, so you know, I, one of the examples I was thinking of is, is for example, you have, you know, uh, three different treatments for, for ED. And um, if you suffer from that, you try these three different treatments and then you see what helps you yeah. best. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, It'd be a, a nice yeah. study to device. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so um, let's get into the heterogeneity a little bit. Bit. So we, of course, know heterogeneity as statisticians. That is kind of our bread and butter to explore uh, variation. That's why we need to have statisticians in the first place, because if there wouldn't be any variations, then you wouldn't need statisticians. In terms of the classical kind of or typical clinical trial heterogeneity assessment. We look into, uh, you know, whether the treatment effects are differ by uh, certain uh, baseline characteristics, uh, patient characteristics, um, or uh, any other biological factors or environmental factors that we can uh, more or less easy track. Um, However, if we look into um, patient preferences, where's the biggest? Where do you see the biggest challenges for exploring heterogeneity? There? Yeah. So I was thinking. I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of clinical trial and heterogeneity. How is that different from a, a preference study? And you know, when when you look at threshold technique, it's not that different. But when you start looking into discrete choice experiment, you're you're not observing preferences. What you are observing is really the choice. As we said, we ask people to make choices that can be stated, can be revealed, but we, we look at choices. Preferences are just a latent thing, a latent variable that is there and that needs to be modeled. So you have first of all you have this intermediate step of modeling the preferences that actually you don't have in threshold technique. So when, when you when you start looking into yeah, 
Yeah. So in terms of just just going back, so for for the listener, threshold technique is basically where you ask, kind of, how much would you, so to say, pay or something for 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 a certain kind so, of alternative. Whereas for so, um, yeah. The, the, diff, the real difference is that in threshold, you, you're, you're interested in one threshold. So you, you show a benefit or something that the medicine gives you. So let, let's make the case of the risk and benefit. So you have a medicine that gives you some benefit mm. and you ask the respondent, are you willing? And the respondent prefers that because it's more beneficial. And then you ask the respondents, if, if this gave you X amount of risk, would you still take it? And you go up and down until you find the real threshold of risk that equivalent to that benefit. Mm -hmm. So it's one yeah. value. And that's almost like a clinical value. It's not yeah. exactly a clinical value, but we can trust it's almost like a clinical value. It's one value. And so you can start exploring that in the very similar way as we explore clinical values. However, when you start doing discrete choice, yeah. you do have an alternative. Uh, or, or multiple alternatives that are different between each other by features or characteristics of these alternatives. It can be up to six, eight different characteristics. And then you need to um, observe the, the choice and you make an assumption that when, when people select an alternative, that gives them the maximum utility or the, bene the maximum bene balance between benefit and risk. And um, just Yeah, just for the listener, so discrete choice experiments basically work in, in a way that um, you get uh, to choose between hypothetical treatments and these differ then on multiple uh, variables. So, for example, they have different outcomes and different efficacy parameters or safety parameters or any other uh, things, kind of formulation, for example, or application. And then uh, you get uh, the, the, um, the patients that uh, get surveyed, they get shown a series of different alternatives, and they then always need to show uh, what they prefer, treatment A versus treatment B, B versus C, C versus D, and so on. And these are all kind of hypothetical treatments that have these different combinations of, of yep. features. But, and then, of course, you need to kind of get the utilities or the patient preferences from these uh, different uh, yeah, choices. So, essentially, what generally we assume uh, is that there is a, under, under, underneath the choice, there is a model that respondent is following. That model is essentially, um, it selects the alternative that gives him or her the maximum balance between utility maximum utility which is essential which is uh you know you add all the benefits you detract all the, the the risks if if the risk is higher than you want you won't select that alternative you select the other one and 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 we observe this we observe the choices when we in in the model behind it we we measure the trade-off that people are, are making really and we look at how people trade off between benefits and risk between different alternatives and so that model gives us all the uh, you know all the coefficients for for each of the of the levels that we include so that, those are the estimations we do already to to understand given the choice 
the choices, the sequence of choices to understand what are the preferences more likely, what are the preferences in the sample. And of course, discrete choices, sample level estimation is not because we need a model to estimate that uh, those preferences. And therefore, when we go back into analyze heterogeneity, there are a lot of other factors that need to be to be included. And very often, we can accommodate for it using you know random parameter logic models or latent class models that are uh, just create some sort of you know our standard deviation, some sort of bin where you put all the heterogeneity and you you get the estimations of the mean. But as statisticians, we're always very much interested in the in the variations as well, and that's where heterogeneity comes in, and it's really interesting, and it's always been my one of my interests in my research. Because mean are boring, right? Th those are the things we use, but they are always those. The heterogeneity is, is what we want. Yeah. 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 In terms of, so basically we get, if we then have a couple of different um, efficacy variables, a couple of different safety variables, and, and maybe some other variables, we get for each of these uh, variables uh, and for each patient, we get a, a preference value. We do get them for, sorry, we, we do get them for for the sample. So the model gives us the sample yeah. level estimation, not for each patient. That's the that's the thing. Okay. Yeah, but we get the variation yeah. as well, and we can. However, we're still yeah. modeling the variation. If you go back into, you get the variation across the sample, and that's precise. But if you if you get back to the individual level, that's where things get complicated because you don't get with the discrete choice, you don't get individual level estimations. You still need to make some yeah. assumption. If yeah. you're ready to do that as assumptions, you also can get individual level estimations, but you need to make some assumptions. Yeah, and there it's where it gets actually yeah. interesting. So um, before we dive into um, kind of the, um, the different ways that we can understand um, variations there. Let's speak a little bit about the different possible covariates that we can look into for, for understanding preferences. So what's kind of traditionally covariables that people look into? So there are the traditional individual characteristic that you can observe in, in clinical trials. So there is gender, there is uh, age, clinical results. Um, those are in those are easy observation that you can use to see if they drive preference heterogeneity. However, it is my experience that very often, well, not, not all the not all the time, you, you shouldn't generalize, but often these do not fully explain heterogeneity. And that's because, as we said at the beginning, there is experience. And experience often is not linked. Although we, we often think experience is linked with age, experience is, is linked to so many things that it's difficult to to, to extrapolate uh, what what drives preferences. There is a recent, a recently rediscovered, if you want, a venue for for exploring preference heterogeneity is trying to link preferences to PRO instruments such as you know locus of control or or other uh, numeracy, other instruments that are already validated out there, and 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 there is an interest in seeing whether those because they are latent as well and they may explain experience they might be again correlated to 
preference heterogeneity. However, it's it's a matter of really research question again and the particular case study. So it depends on what what you really need, <laughs> and then that's yeah yeah. That is actually uh, why it's it's good to have different ways to understand uh, heterogeneity. So one classical way is of course the um, to understand how certain factors drive that. And uh, there you already mentioned a couple of different uh, ways to uh, basically model the um, uh, covariates like age and gender and how they impact separation preferences. How do these it, work? It depends on what you model and how you def- decide uh, looking at the data. Generally, we estimate... So in, in general when we have a data set with preferences done with a discrete choice experiment, you estimate, first of all, a conditional logic model, which is the baseline and the benchmark that gives you no heterogeneity, assumes that everybody has the same preferences. Of course, that assumption is strong, but it's an easy model to estimate and use as a benchmark. And then you estimate additional models where Mm -hmm. uh, can be the most known is the random parameter logic model, which allow you to somehow account for this heterogeneity. In the random parameter logic model, you need to make an assumption on the distribution of preferences across the sample. Usually, it is assumed to be normally distributed with mean and standard deviation. That is a, well another strong assumption, but at least moves heterogeneity out of the mean. We're not modeling it. We are just moving it out and mm-hmm. accommodating for it. Another way to do this very similar thing is with a latent class. A latent class, instead of assuming a, a continuous distribution with a normal, for example, it, it assumes that the distribution is uh, clustered, if you want, or it, it separated in different discrete classes of preferences. Those preferences are then, uh, those classes are then um, estimated sep- together with a probability of each individual to be in, in each class. And, and those are the two more, uh, the, the two models that I use the most, let's say. They're not the only one. Once you have those models in the random parameter logic, you could, you can do a, a, sub, a, a subgroup analysis. So you, you can look at your variables, your, your the variables you want to use for, ex- the factors you want to use for, for explaining preference heterogeneity, let's say gender. And you can create a dummy variable that interacts with all the levels you have in the model. And you can check the difference between your baseline, male, and your uh, interacted female, for example. Or age, again, is this very similar thing, uh, younger and Mm -hmm. and older. Um, And that's done for each subgroup, for each level. And then you look at whether these levels, the preferences between the two subgroups are systematically different which is a whole test, really, the very simple test to do. Um, then you could, yeah. if, if you have estimated latent class, you could also try to include your variables in the membership probability class. So at this point, as we said before, the, the, the latent class estimates a set of preferences at different classes, and in each class has a set of preferences that are different and a membership probability. So the probability that each individual is in which class. And then you can make 
that probability depend on your characteristics. The interesting things of this is that you can use multiple characteristics um, in, in, in the function. We often find that, unfortunately, because the data sets are not huge or built to do this in, 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 in pharma, in, in our data set, usually we don't find many things that are significant. Um, the expectation would be that the subgroup analysis should give the same results as the latent class analysis with membership probability. However, it might not. There is not a lot of evidence. So we really, this is a, an interesting, it's very interesting and, and um, topic because it's, it's, it's a new venue where we could explore how different are the results and I'll you know, do some sort of um, um, sensitivity analysis. Uh, how, how do you impact on your results depending on the choice of the model? And then there is, of course, uh, this has always been a, a problem that people mm -hmm. needed to, to deal with. And so th there is literature and we could look at how other field dealt with it and, and decide for ourselves what, what's best in each case. Again, the research, the research question needs to drive the modeling. That's probably, yeah. In terms of that, I think it's a similar scenario like for any other data set. The better you want to understand the heterogeneity and the more kind of factors you want to look into, the bigger your data set needs to be, um, or you'll be able to just, you know, find... Yeah. Very, very impactful covariates. Yeah. That's well, that's pretty clear. If you have kind of just thirty uh, yes. survey respondents, <laughs> then it gets really, really difficult. <laughs> okay, so um, that's one way to look into it. In terms of we know or we we have data on the different factors to drive. Um, DCE, but in our presentation at last year's uh, PSI conference, we also use cluster analysis. Let's talk a little bit about this. I have another episode generally about cluster analysis, and um, you can just go back in your um, in your podcast player to actually find it. So if you have never heard about cluster analysis, I would r strongly recommend you go back to that one. So uh, let's speak about cluster analysis for, for patient preferences. Um, what was the outcome of our analysis uh, that we presented so last there, year? There, there was a, a larger data set, and we tried to... Um, we. We use latent class to to to, class to to separate different groups around in 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 the sample by preferences and see whether the different clusters or groups uh, in in the in the sample had different preferences between them. And we found that we in in there we didn't add, we didn't um, input any characteristic in the in the clustering and so we let the data tell us how many cluster how many groups we have and how they differ between each other without really trying to uh, look at the characteristic at least that's what we did in in our paper we we then found four four cluster for classes and each class had a different 
type of preference. One was risk, more risk tolerant than the other. One w- w- really wanted eff- effects and wasn't really looking into risks. Um, there was a class that was uh, trading off everything and was uh, not particularly interested in any of these attributes, but all the attributes were driving their choices. And so you can you can essentially um, un- trying to understand where our respondents are, our preferences of these respondents are uh, characterized and, and whether the respondents have, do, do we find subgroups? Do we find that there are different uh, clusters in the sample? And if so, are they different enough that tell us, you know, we may need different solutions for different clusters. And that's and that's useful, especially if you if you're looking into policy and into trying to convince uh, behavior or change behavior, say smoking or, or physical activity. Um, you want to know how many messages you, you need to push out there to get as many people as possible. Um, in 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 drug development, this can be useful when you get into uh, understanding if there is a, a a group that is more willing to take risks than another. Then you may want to develop. You may accept drugs that are more or less risky. I think it also helps you to understand what are your kind of uh, target patient groups. So, for example. You have a new drug that is um, much better from an efficacy point of view, but also comes with additional uh, safety concerns. Then you want to go for the patients. You want to understand how many patients are there that really value the efficacy much more than the safety side because these will be your target patients, whereas um, patients that are more uh, risk-averse may go with a more kind of traditional drugs that has less side effects. So, um, and to really understand that, these kind of different techniques were quite interesting to look into. Could be also other features of the drug. So maybe you have... um, uh, different drug applications. You have a drug that is a pill versus an injectable, and you want to understand um, how many patients are there that don't care whether it's a pill or injectable, or how you know what are these patients. And I found it really, really interesting to look into the data and see that um, age, gender, uh, severity, uh, lots of these different things didn't really play a big role in um, understanding the patient preferences. However, when we used the cluster approach, we found huge, huge differences and quite nicely separated uh, patient um, classes that had distinct profiles in terms of their patient preference. Just to to pause for a second, I... we need to look into it, but I am not too sure how the cluster analysis and latent cluster analysis differ. So I need to go back and check your 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 uh, podcast as well. Um, I think they're very similar, but might differ different. So I don't know. Yeah. 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 So in terms of um, 
the the cluster analysis. How did that work for uh, from a technical <laughs> point of I, view? It's, uh, for for what we did it was a latent class analysis, and essentially because that's what in preference analysis that's what we latent class is what we estimated in that in that in that data set, and the model itself what it does it creates different groups of preferences that are homogeneous within each group, but they are different across groups. And then tries to to estimate how each respondent mm -hmm. can be assigned to each of these groups with up to a probability. So there, be, there will be somebody who is 25% in each, and there will be somebody who will be 100% in one and zero in the other. And that's looking at their latent choices, the latent preferences that we can look at observing their choices, we infer that they have different preferences and the model gets uh, assigned probabilities uh, to each and then gives us back a average probability yeah. for the sample, which is the average of those. And so we got that th there is the first decision you need to make when you do a latent class is how many classes you want. And that there are uh, indexes you can use, uh, you know, the IC or other indices that tell you, you know, how the model fit the data. And then once you decide the data, and in our case, we we found four classes was the best yeah. Yeah. Um, modeling for the data we had because we more classes weren't describing differences enough, less classes weren't describing all the differences. So four classes were what we found, and we found that there were two higher um, more probable classes. There were a class, uh, and, and there were classes where they were training everything in class. They were uh, paying more attention to effect, effects, uh, efficacy, and risks. And then there was a class who was looking really, there was a, a very small, a smaller class who was afraid of the mode. I think it didn't want to use needles. That's one thing we found. And so, for this smaller class, uh, yeah. a needle, you know, yeah. needle approach, uh, a, a treatment that it uses a injection is not what you want. And then that was a, what you were saying that you can use this type of analysis to target your 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 population and see who needs what. Um, yeah, so that is actually a very uh, cluster analysis, and and yeah. uh, this latent class analysis has a kind of same understanding. You, you basically assume um, that your uh, patients come from distinct distributions, and then of course you have the problem that these distributions overlap in, in some some way and you also don't know how many distributions these are coming from yeah. and that is where the probability comes into place so you have basically uh, for each patient you get a probability um, for all these different classes and then you assign basically the uh, patient to that class where he has the highest probability to go into. I think that's the difference. That is the, the real difference between the cluster analysis and the latent class. It, it comes to the end. So the, the latent class analysis in the yeah. preferences, and the, one works and 
it works as well as the other. One assumes and doesn't uh, then assign the respondent to one class or the other, while there is the cluster analysis assigned the respondent to the class who has in which he has the the, the yeah. highest probability. And there are pros and cons in both. Yeah. And they think they should align if a respondent is really into a class, and they should differ a little bit more, if resp- especially if you have an, a higher number of classes or clusters, if respondents are a little bit all over the places. But the results should be very similar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and of course, it always depends on kind of how you fit the data. Yeah. So in terms of what kind of um, uh, goodness of yeah. fit statistics you basically uh, try to to, yeah. to optimize. So these are kind of the, the different things. And I'm going into a couple of different ways to do that in the episode about cluster analysis. So in terms of practical implications, um, we talked a little bit about this um, in terms of treatment decisions. There's one study that I would like to discuss a little bit deeper into because it also had a a huge impact uh, from a regulatory perspective. And that is this... um, FDA study about uh, obesity. Could you speak a little bit to to this study? I I can speak a little bit about this study. I wasn't involved in this. I read the paper as anybody can. In uh, it's it's a paper called "Incorporating Patient Preference Evidence into Regulatory Decision Making," and they explain there what they did. But essentially, it was a a study uh, sponsored by FDA, and they wanted to understand. Um, whether these new obesity devices that they they were developing or you know, they were under development, not they were developing, of course, they were they were under development, they were submitted, um, how people perceive them, and you know, we people wanted to know uh, if uh, we could elicit preferences and look at minimum benefit uh, that was required to accept risks because this device had high risk and that dangerous risk, this risk of death, and so. Uh, you know, there, there is a mortality risk and FDA wanted to know is this risk worth you know, the effects, the benefit we get. Um, results were very interesting and they were different results. They, they did a survey with 540 uh, patients, adults uh, with BMI higher than 30, so classified as obese. And they looked at the trade-off between effectiveness, safety, and other attributes on weight loss. And uh, an interesting thing was uh, sugar intake. People didn't like diets with with less sugar intake. And that demonstrated that the the model worked. If if you like, you you don't like not to eat. Um, The the results show, for example, that uh, people were willing to accept a 001% mortality risk only if we had they had a 10% total body a total body weight loss lasting 5 years so if the device could give them a 10% total weight body weight loss lasting five, at least 5 years they would be willing to accept a higher risk of mortality but the interesting thing and and that wasn't enough for for approving the devices but the interesting thing is that they managed to capture heterogeneity they found that there was a subgroup of people who were you know risk tolerant these patients were thinking 
it's it's worth taking the risk to reduce my body weight also because my body weight is killing me and and so the trade-off is is very real there and and um and so this fact the fact that there were subgroups in the population there were subgroups that were willing to risk more pushed a little bit we don't know how much the decision wasn't taken only based on the preferences, of course, and that never will never happen. There is also the clinical factors; otherwise, we wouldn't we wouldn't really develop all these drugs. But the the preferences was one of the things that pushed to approve these devices that were more risky. And you know, this this is an example of uh, trying to understand really how to incorporate these patient preferences and 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 this. Um, uh, heterogeneity, exploring heterogeneity into the medical device pre-market approval, and it was an interesting study. I think it was a uh, there were there were really interesting finding, and it was one of case where the subgroup drove a difference, and the different was important for a decision taken in the regulatory respect uh, decision, the regulatory perspective. <laughs> And of course, you can find the reference in the show notes. So just go to theeffectivestatistician.com and you'll find uh, the reference that we just talked about. So that is uh, very, very nice. Uh, and I think a must read for anybody that is um, uh, trying to understand how that impacts regulatory assessment. There's another, um, there's a couple of other references that uh, I talked in earlier podcasts about. So um, in terms of the podcast uh, interviews that I did with Sharul and Maria, as well as the podcast with Brad. So just go back to these. They will also be uh, linked in the, uh, in the show notes. However, there's one other thing that I wanted to talk uh, with you about, and this is the um, patient-centered benefits-risk framework. Can you tell a little bit about this one? Well, this was, uh, again, I wasn't involved in that. Brett was. Uh, it's, um, it was the MDIC uh, that developed this framework, and it's, it's available online. And they looked at how uh, really uh, how to incorporate patient preferences um, into decision-making and uh, what, what the emphasis on benefit-risk assessment and how, how given some guidance on how to use preferences. Um, the, the, of course, you can find them. I guess you can find all the information, the link, um, and the references there. Um, it was, it's been used, it's been around since probably 2000. 12, 2015, the, the, the publication was now in 2015, um, and is very aligned, very much aligned with uh, the IMI uh, preferred results in terms of classification of preferences. They looked at how different preferences can be cataloged and classified, and they looked at how what we discussed before. We have stated preference, reveal preferences, structure, weight, health, state, utility, and how you can use them. Um, and there are a series of webinars and, and uh, videos there that you can just watch in the in the in the in the website. So that's that's really all it is. It's a series of guidelines and series of um, opinions and and uh, discussion about um, how to use preferences or other uh, indeed other methods to to weigh benefit and risks. 
Yeah, the Nether Resources also is a nice video on demand um, library of PSIs that gives you access to uh, lots of different webinars, uh, conference sessions uh, that were uh, done on benefit risk and patient preferences, and the special interest group uh, on benefit risk that Markus also uh, uh, a member of is um, very active on CSU. Check out the PSI homepage, and um, as a member, you have free access to this video on demand library. So, in terms of summing up, we, we have talked about today about patient experience data and uh, the uh, patient preference being one key area in that. We talked about the different ways you can um, understand and collect data on it, uh, state it, and reveal preferences. And then we dived really deeper into what drives heterogeneity in these uh, patient preferences and that this might be very, very different from the usual clinical trial outcomes uh, where we very often want to understand biologic um, relationships with here very, very different uh, covariates and, and the experience of the patients um, might play a bigger role. And this is also reflected in the case study that we talked about, uh, the obesity case study, where the FDA looked into what are the uh, patient preferences for their studies. And with that, thanks so much, Marco, for, for this very, very nice discussion about heterogeneity and patient preference data. And thank you for the opportunity to have it. This show was created in association with PSI. Next week, we have another interesting topic. Just wait for next week, as always. On Tuesday, you can find a new episode. Thanks for listening. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes that we mentioned a couple of times and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector.